congratulations to the Anaheim Angels, team founded in 1961. This is your first world championship. And I want to say to all of you that somewhere Gene Autry is smiling right now. Congratulations to Disney, to Michael Eisner, who I'm about to present the World Championship Trophy, to Bill Stoneman, and to Mike Sosa, and all the Cal Anaheim Angels. smiling. What do you think he'd be saying about this moment right now? Well, I'm standing here looking at his picture up in his box, and I've got his hat here with me, and all I can say is, he loved every fan in this stadium, and he loved the California Angels. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? It's your boy, half man, half podcast machine, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players. And their stories. Want to welcome everyone in this week from the grizzled OG vet that has followed me uh, since day one of this amazing journey of baseball stories to, you know, like the virginal pod surfer who wound up inside this barrel right here for the first time and, you know, wants to check it out. Backwards K Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. you know, you can, uh, wherever you listen to your pods, you can, it's available on all those platforms. Or you can visit my website at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. 
And I come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. No crowdsourcing. No Patreon. And I will never charge you for the content that I give you here. I'm not here to nickel and dime my, my audience. I'm here to celebrate the greatest game ever invented through all the amazing stories, personalities, and moments that baseball has given us. So, if you like what you hear, please remember to share, subscribe, follow, and download. If you're a Spotify or Apple user, please remember to rate and review. Uh, I ain't skirt. All these things, uh, you know, it kind of helps my grassroots effort here. No. And after, you know, I'm always grateful for the feedback. I love conversing with my audience. Um, and, you know, and I love the feedback. And speaking of feedback, I just want to thank everyone who reached out to me about last week's pod on the Yankee husband swap kind of deal there um, between Mike Kekich and Fritz Peterson. There was a lot of positive messages, which was awesome. But I actually got some angry messages from people who felt like I was just dredging up the past there. And there's like this group of people who really want this story to die. And they felt like I was being disrespectful, which to me is just insane. I got a message from Andy in NYC. And first of all, it's all caps. So I know this guy is like really angry at me. It's, it, it, <laughs> it says, for heaven's sakes, bro, let it go. This was 50 years ago. And no, I ain't relaxing. Did you ever do something stupid? I have, and certainly I don't need anybody to remind me 50 years later about it. SMH. Uh, SMH was actually in lowercase. <laughs> Again, all caps. So I guess it would behoove me to answer this guy, Andy in New York City. I think that it's just insane that you would think I was disrespecting him. So, you asked me if I've ever done anything stupid. Absolutely I have. Look, I cheated on the mother of my child. I lost her forever. I once got caught stealing a cheesesteak sandwich from the high school cafeteria and my mom had to come into school and speak to the principal. My mother and I have been estranged from one another for over 35 years. Trust me, brother. I've done some stupid shit in my life. Much more stupid than this. And here's the thing, I would even consider this stupid, and I never presented the story like I thought it was stupid in the first place. It's 2022, folks. Wife swapping, any shit nowadays. Swapping, cuckolding, it, it, it's not even a blip on the radar anymore. So that's the first thing. Number two. Fritz loves telling this story. He loves it so much that he was willing to consult Matt Damon and Ben Affleck about a movie project on this very story. So, it looks like Fritz is more than willing to share this story 50 years later. Let's not pretend that something I'm doing here on podcast is going to cause problems for the people involved in this story. Let's not forget, they had a press conference when it happened. So, Look, man, I gave three of my most horrible, embarrassing moments as my penance to you. I hope you can forgive me, and I'll try to be better in the future. And, I mean, that wasn't the only one. I got another message from Paul in New York who felt like since, you know, Fritz is having health issues that I'm being disrespectful. Now, look, that's just flat-out dumb. 
This is Peterson's love story. The story of how he connected with the woman of his dreams, married her, and had four beautiful daughters. And I wish Fritz and Mike and Marilyn and Suzanne nothing but long health and life. But we all have a mortal cord. And the truth is, not long after all these characters are gone, that story is going to live on regardless if I tell it or not. And in closing, most professional baseball players... They want three things above everything else. They want to be champions, they want to get paid, and they want to be remembered. And Fritz and Kekic will be remembered for, you know, like my boy Squid says, forever. <laughs> but look, I, I did get quite a bit of positive reinforcement. It wasn't all bad, but... I feel like I just presented the story without bias, without judgment. And I told you, I just felt bad for Kekich's dog. Other than that, you know, life is short. And if everyone that is involved is good with it, then who the hell am I to judge? I just told the story. And that's what we do at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. And that's never going to change. But look, it got people talking. It hit some emotions with some people, I guess. Not really sure why. But it garnered listens. So all in all, thank you for all the comments and all the listens. If you'd like to send me a message, you can email the show at uh, backwardskpod at gmail.com. And I also got a ton of messages from Facebook. And you can find me there at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. So, yeah. I love interacting with the audience. And by all means, drop me a line if you would like. And... I think that covers all the minutia. Look, uh, looks like the catcher's coming down. Let's all hop aboard the night train here and get this mother rolling. As this week, we will be digging into the history of the Big A, home of the Anaheim Angels of Los Angeles, Orange County, Irvine. And for these heavenly cherubs of baseball, And their fans, the happiest place on earth is not Disneyland. It's a little plot of ex-farmland that once grew oranges and alfalfa sprouts, but now produces salmon and trout. They call their baseball heaven the Big A of Anaheim. So, if you have looked through my catalog of shows, you will see that I have covered quite a few stadiums. I've done the old palaces like Crosley Field, Shy Park, and I have many more of those coming from Polo Grounds to Forbes Field, Sportsman Park. I'm going to do them all. I'm going to give you all these cribs. And you also note that I've covered the current cribs in use today, Fenway, Wrigley, Dodger Stadium, as I am literally going in order from the oldest stadium to the newest, which leads us now to the Big A, the fourth oldest current stadium in baseball. Now, I promise since day one of this show to give you 28 of the 30 current stadiums. And some of you newbies may be wondering why only 28 of 30. Well, that's because I refuse to do the research of the mausoleum in Oakland, Alameda County, or that shit box down in Tampa. Get a new crib, and then I'll cover it. So, with that being said, here we are at the fourth oldest current stadium in the majors. And like many, you know, Gil Cougar LA slash... California starlets. She has undergone her share of makeovers, and quite honestly, that second time under the knife, it did her well. She's as sexy as many of her newer contemporaries. 
Behind the backdrop of massive freeways and dry riverbeds, Angel Stadium of Anaheim still resonates her historical past. As you enter the parking lots off of Gene Autry Way, a row of trees split the way, and it evokes the days of, you know, these long orchard roads, you know, that existed on this hallowed ground at one time. At the south end of the lot, the iconic and towering Big A structure looms as one of the ballpark's distinctive features as it once served as the stadium's main scoreboard. It's now uh, advertised its coming events to drivers on the 10-lane Orange Freeway. At the main entrance, Mickey Mouse himself. Yes, it's the real Mickey Mouse. I've checked it all out. And it's the real Mickey Mouse. He hangs out. He's ready to pose with fans. As a brief reminder of a time when, you know, the Disney brand briefly ruled over this franchise and restored the park with a splash of that Magic Kingdom veneer. And as you walk into this magical kingdom, you will notice that the right field bleachers are all that remains of the stadium's expansion to a multi-purpose crib back in 1980. As for anyone sitting in the original three levels behind home plate and down the lines, the San Gabriel Mountains, which were once obstructed, are now no longer blocked. Yeah, I'll be with a few uh, recent foreground construction on the Honda Center, home of the NHL Mighty Ducks, and a 12-story stadium towers across the railroad from the stadium lot. And, of course... The Disney brand's ultimate stamp on the Big A is behind left center field with a giant faux rock pile, and it's referred to as California Spectacular. Whenever a fighting cherub drops dong, the rock pile spectacular shoots out water geysers and it bursts flames high into the air. And for a 56-year-old chick, the big A still looks sharp. Sometimes it's hard to believe she's the fourth oldest stadium in the bigs. And while she may not have the passionate vibe of a Fenway or a Wrigley, or even, uh, you know, the tradition of Dodger Stadium, it's okay. Unlike those three teams, the Angels have a suburban fan base in their suburban palace, and they show up in droves. When the stadium opened in 1966, it carried the motto of convenience, comfort, and courtesy. And both host and fan continue to take that to heart to this day. So, if you look at the Big A today, and it's, you know, present day surroundings, you would be amazed by its humble rural beginnings to an MLB franchise town in the late 30s and early 40s. The Philadelphia A's, the St. Louis Browns, they both briefly held spring training camps there. And about a decade later, Anaheim would become one of these you know, hot preseason spots for the Hollywood stars of the Pacific Coast League. The growth of Anaheim was a result predominantly for two reasons. The post-war baby boom and the mass migration of Easterners to head west and to California in particular. In 1950, the population of Anaheim was around 14,500 people. A decade later, it blew up to hundred grand, And it just kept growing to all the farmland that was being brought, bought up, bulldozed, and developed. 
1963, Anaheim Mayor Rex Coons he went to D.C. in an effort to see the region gain status as its own metropolitan statistical era, separating themselves from Los Angeles. And while awaiting word, Coons began studying you know, demographics from all the markets that were granted this designation, and it hit him right across the lips. Orange County would be the only one without a sports team. And two, L.A. had two sports teams, and one wasn't very happy. The Los Angeles Angels, born in 1961, were in desperate need of a home. In the beginning of the franchise, the Cherubs played at the old and dilapidated Wrigley Field of California. Not to be mistaken for the Palace, you know, in North Chicago. They then fled to Dodger Stadium, where they were forced to pay high rent by their sugar daddy Dodgers, and returned for a very small slice of the revenue pie. The Angels owner, Gene Autry, who was called the singing cowboy of radio, movies and television, he was desperate to get from under the Dodgers' yoke. He was looking for a chance at an exodus. L.A. politicians, they were paralyzed with fear after the rough social experiences of securing land for the Dodgers. And they could only offer up Super Pro Stadium sites for the Angels, and both of these were abandoned reservoirs. And folks, just a quick sidebar. If you listen to my Dodger Stadium show, you have an understanding of how awful that experience was in securing land that would eventually become the site of Dodger Stadium. There were three prominent Mexican-American communities wiped out Cervez Ravine for a failed housing project plan, and that area would eventually be taken over by the Dodgers. And it is just an awful atrocity of a story that was allowed to happen, and if you don't know this story, I highly suggest you dip into the archives at Diamond Snake Jake. .podbean.com to understand what I'm talking about here. Okay, where was I? The Angels need land, right? Okay, so the Angels are told of these two former reservoirs that exist, and Autry declines. Autry has other plans at first, and it is in Anaheim, actually. He instead looks south at Long Beach near El Dorado Regional Park. And everything feels right. So, Autry is on board, and everything looks good. However, the city of Long Beach, they made a narcissistic overreach when they demanded the team be renamed the the Long Beach Angels. And for Autry, this is a deal breaker. He was insistent that the team be named California Angels or hold its L.A. status. And sidebar, folks, uh... Butterfly effect moment, where history is changed by the slightest flap of a butterfly wing. If Long Beach had been awarded the Angels, the world's most famous crimp, Snoop Doggy Dog, he would have been a blind. Now, that, that just made my brain melt. I just can't even imagine the SNOOP wearing red. <laughs> but I digress. Autry then received a call from Mayor Coons, who basically said, call the team whatever you want, we want you here. And after a while, Autry and his pragmatism thought, why not? You know, Orange County, it holds unlimited growth and promise 
a ballpark could absorb the attention of tours visiting nearby Disneyland and not Berry Farm. And it could benefit from not only the L.A. metro market, but San Diego as well, which wouldn't have the projects for another three years yet. So the ear Autry said, build us a stadium ready by opening day 1966, and we will be there. And with less than two years to deliver on his promise, Mayor Coons is now feeling the pressure, especially when a couple of investors pull out of the deal and they're leaving some to wonder whether you know private investments would serve this new venue better. Eventually, the deal would push through when contractor Del Webb, the co-owner of the New York Yankees at the time, promised to build it on time. The second deal was approved August of 1964, and the shovels immediately hit the ground to begin construction. Now, Anaheim Stadium, as we call it, the first 32 years of ex- her existence, was built on four different plots of farmland that were growing mostly oranges, alfalfa, and corn. The payout just to ob- obtain the land was generous, a total of $4 million, which in today's economy comes out to around $36 million. There were many places in Anaheim considered, but these farms checked all the boxes for several things. It sits near a confluence of three major freeways, the Santa Ana I-5, the Orange State Highway 51, and the Garden Grove State Highway 22. And it was just a long ball, a uh, long fly ball from Disneyland right across the I-5. And the choice of Del Webb to build the Big A, it seems like an intriguing choice in retrospect. He was born and raised in Fresno. He was certainly familiar with Major League Baseball as he was the owner of the Yankees. But he had zero experience in laying out and building an actual stadium. He had headed upgrading of the new Kauffman Stadium as well as Memorial Stadium in Baltimore during the mid-50s. And he had like this unique resume in that he built Japanese internment camps during World War II, as well as retired communities in Sun City. But one of the most fascinating projects in his life was when he built the Flamingo and other casinos in Vegas under the direct direction of monster Bugsy Siegel who once famously soothed Webb's anxiety of their partnership by telling him don't worry, Dell. We only kill each other. Webb visited and did his research on you know the stadiums around the league, bound to do all the right things with this crib and to drop all the things that don't work structurally, architecturally, and from a, a fan's viewing perspective. And one of the things he did away with was bleacher seats. Instead, Webb built three uh, decks tightly around the field from pole to pole, reducing foul territory and bringing fans closer to the action. Now, architecturally speaking, the Big A was conservative with few risks taken. As I said earlier, convenience, comfort, courtesy, that was the goal. And that was prioritized over bold design, bells, and technological whistles. So, beyond the appreciative, but eh, rather mundane, the main uh, conversation piece would stand tall and proud behind the left center field wall. The 230-foot 
Big A shaped scoreboard was topped with a huge halo. It stood taller than the Astrodome roof, and it was a point of congregation for many chair fans throughout the game. The structure cost over a million dollars to construct, which is right around $9 million a day, and that was paid for by the company uh, Standard Oil. It became such a celebrated structure that soon after the opening, sports writers began, you know, they just began to nickname the ballpark after it, the Big A. The Angels did everything they could to separate their new stadium from Dodger Stadium. They wanted this stadium to be more offense-friendly than what the thick Pacific Ocean air of Chavez Ravine had to offer. However, with the different wind patterns and thinner atmosphere, the Angels and the Dodgers had almost identical symmetrical field dimensions in the beginning. In fact, the Angels probably wanted to second-think that decision when their first two exhibition games versus the Giants yielded 14 total home runs. However, once the game was played for real and the pitchers made their adjustments, it became clear that the Big A played very much like Dodger Stadium with low scores, minuscule batting averages, and it was devoid of home runs. And at first, you know, those one and nothing, 2 to one games, they're fine. Orange County fans, they're just happy to see an MLB stadium in their backyard. And the inaugural 1966 season saw Anaheim draw over 1.4 million fans, which was the best in the American League. And as the euphoria of the new stadium and team declined, so did the attendance. Though the Angels occasionally topped a million fans that first decade, it was always a challenge. It didn't help that the team couldn't contend, they couldn't hit. In 1976, the Halos offense limped in with a 216 team batting average and only 24 home runs combined by their starting lineup. Not surprisingly, the only real superstar during this time was Nolan Ryan. And look, I got a Nolan Ryan show in our collection of ballplayers here at BKP, and it's an in-depth look at his life and his career. I encourage you to check that out on demand at diamondstickjake.podbean.com. So, I'm not going to dig into Ryan today, but needless to say, those teams could not hit, and Ryan's credibility as a top 10 great has always suffered because of it. Sagging attendance, poor finishes in the AL West, and took a financial toll on the team back then. From the beginning, Anaheim always sought, you know, a second tenant, preferably an NFL team. And in 1966, it looked like the San Diego Chargers had a deal in place that would allow them to leave crumbling Balboa Stadium for the Big A. However, the San Diego voters... They, uh, you know, they gave the green light on a brand new multi-purpose stadium, Qualcomm Stadium, aka the Murph, Jack Murphy Stadium, aka San Diego Stadium, thus keeping the Chargers put. Ironically, here in 2022, the Chargers now play in LA. In the mid to late 70s, the Big A tried to generate revenue through any means possible. It did rock concerts, motocross events, soccer games. Uh, with California Surf and Southern California Sun and the short-lived World Football League. However, 
Local politicians were now looking for disgruntled tenants like the Angels once wore with the Dodgers. And they found their mark in the Los Angeles Rams in the NFL. The Rams were not enjoying their experience playing in the ancient L.A. Memorial Coliseum, the city of Anaheim, and these local politicians made more than overtures and pursuing the Rams as they made a full-page pitch to the team officials in the L.A. Times. And the ballpark with Gene Autry's approval. They would do more than just add 22,000 makeshift seats on right field like they proposed for the Chargers back in 66. Instead, they promised to make the stadium a fully enclosed multi-purpose crib, tucking into the second level 107 brand new luxury suites. All for the Rams to own and profit from. And like Gene Autry before him, Carol Rosenblum, owner of the Rams, he was all in, and he left the crumbling Coliseum in his rearview mirror. At first, it appeared that Autry and the Angels were fine with the $33 million project to enclose and expand Angel Stadium, even though it virtually destroyed all of the baseball ambiance. And... You know, quite honestly, the Rams and Angels, they had a pretty good relationship in the beginning until Autry got word that the expansion pact, it also called for a high-rise business complex to be built for the Rams on part of the parking lot. The Angels sued the city of Anaheim, and that was the beginning of a 12-year tumultuous and contentious relationship that saw the two parties, Rams and uh, Halos, take turns suing each other. And in 1994, it was finally ruled that the lots belonged to the city, but they needed to be fully used by the Angels, and that negated all chances of that development going down. The bigger A, as she was now derisively and humorously called, now resembled Candlestick Park, you know, minus the 30-mile-per-hour prevailing wind. The new enclosure, it gave the stadium a trapezoid look from above, Football press boxes were added to the third base side, upper deck, and extra football seats. They folded out at like this weird angle that was anything but parallel to the sidelines. The expansion would be the end of the Big A scoreboard. It was never going to be practical with three decks now enclosed around the field, and moving it behind the structure would give it little purpose, and it would actually be a safety hazard should a major earthquake cause it to topple into the stands. But there was enough public affection and outcry against the extinction of the structure that they placed it on rollers and they moved it to the south end of the parking lot. In its place, a new scoreboard was perched in left field with a smaller version of the big A-frame atop of it. Now, the addition of new seats forced the Angels to readjust their field dimensions. If they moved the walls back to the front of the new bleacher seats, the team would be looking at 400 feet in left center field to 440 feet just left of center field. So to avoid this old school uh, Yankee Stadium Death Valley dilemma and to retain symmetry, the Cherubs set up a left field fence to match the reframe distance in right field, where new seating put them at 370 feet in the alleys. The smaller dimensions, it created more dong being dropped, and it gave the Angels room to create a new bullpen. Now, 
even though the Big A was Frankensteined into this typical 70s and 80s multi-purpose stadium, it really didn't hurt the Halos much in the early years of modern free agency. Gene Autry was a player. He transformed the no-stick team into an all-star unit when he stole guys like Reggie Jackson from the Yankees, Rod Carew from the Twins, Fred Lynn from the Red Sox, uh, Don Baylor and Bobby Gritch from the Orioles. From 1979 to 1986, the Cherubs won three divisional titles, and ticket sales went through the roof, soaring past the two million mark in '79 and clocking in with uh, 2.8 million fans in 1982, which was a record at that time. The enlarging capacity it helped Anaheim to draw 60,000 fans to some games, but. Here's the problem. When, when, say, a sizable attendance, like, say, 40 grand shows up, the park looks kind of empty. Well, the Rams tenure the big A. It was short. It was rocky. The owner, Carol Rosenblum, he died shortly after the agreement, and his heir and wife, Georgia, she never liked the move to Anaheim. Made life difficult in Orange County. I'd rather not say anything bad about dead people, but she literally literally had very few redeeming qualities that the public ever got to see. Uh, She would eventually flirt with the city of St. Louis and leave for Missouri in 1994. And the Halos would regain sole possession of the crib. As Audrey was getting older, closing in on his 90th birthday... The cowboy recruiter, he released, relinquished control to Disney, a stockholder from, you know, almost the beginning. And Disney, who had a, a huge impact on Dodger Stadium. Again, go check that out if you haven't heard it. Disney was in no mood for status quo. And they set out to make this enclosed behemoth look like a major league ballpark once again. Partnering with Disney would be HOK Sports. The Kansas City-based firm responsible for Oriole Park and Camden Yards and many other stadiums at the time. The rebirth of the modern baseball retro look. And the people at Disney also, they borrowed ideas from Euro Disney. And some in-house resources were utilized via Walt Disney's Imagineering Department, which would ultimately be responsible for the Rock Pile Spectacular out in center field. And when asked to chip in on the $118 million in renovations, the city of Anaheim agreed under one condition, that the then Cleveland or California Angels would be referred to as the Anaheim Angels. Disney decided they could live with that, and everybody agreed. So, the ballpark's second major facelift into what we recognize today in its current state. All traces of the 1980 expansion have been eliminated except for the right field bleachers. A heightened 18-foot fence with an out-of-town scoreboard stands at the bleacher base now. Over in left field, a small batch of bleachers with both bullpens staggering upwards into the first six rows. And in between both bleachers lie the California Spectacular. Various shrubs and a fake grass slope behind center field and the rock pile that serves as the batter's eye. More seats were added behind home plate in the form of luxury boxes. Now, walking around the park is more spacious than ever. 
The main field level concourses have been widened throughout the years. There is plenty of concourse room out in center field. And even with the patio area near the California Spectacular, a second scoreboard beyond left field was added in 2004. The ballpark's outer radius, the plaza, was expanded and reimagined to be utilized by more fans before and after the game. The area is separated uh, by the parking lot with an elegant, like, wrought iron gate. It, it may be like the one we'll be standing at the end of all this trying to get in. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying that's what I thought when I saw it. It has food courts, palm trees, like this tropical theme, and it houses the only two statues inside the stadium. Now, check this out. One statue is Gene Autry, which is totally a no-brainer. And the second one is Rod Carew's daughter, Michelle, who died of leukemia in 1996. But she was a major player in bone marrow research and the team immortalized Carew's daughter for all her services and fighting leukemia. And I don't know, man, that just totally blew me away. I had no idea about that, and that is amazing. Now, overlooking that plaza on the second level are two semicircular atriums with a round bar in the middle. And again, side note, folks, I did the research. Angel Stadium has the third best prices for beer in the bigs as they average around 12 ounces of beer and it'll cost you five dollars so that sounds like a cool place to drink your sorrows away and wonder why a team that has trout and otani cannot be better fans are again reintroduced to the beautiful mountain views beyond left field and the dull battleship gray that used to adorn her it's now been replaced with a combination of Earth and sandstone, beige, and green steel. In the end, the team decided against rolling the Big A scoreboard back into the grant because, well, quite frankly, it was just too costly. Field symmetry was abolished in favor of scoring symmetry, as the Angels prefer a fair and balanced game between pitcher and hitter. Right field remains an easy poke with the alleys holding at 370 feet from home, but left center field has given more room with gaps uh, reaching up to 380 from home plate. The second renovation started in October of 1996, and it finished in time for the start of the 98 season. As by then, the ballpark was named Edison International Field, as naming rights were awarded to a local utility company. Attendance at uh, it had fallen under two million dollars and uh, two million fans in preceding years, as fans soured on you know this old multi-purpose disaster. But now the fans are coming back to this refurbished, refreshed ballpark, and you know rebranded by Disney all around. Well, the Angels they responded as a group of talented. You know they they they. They started grooming these talented, homegrown Kush players, you know, who just blew up on the MLB stage. Ballers like Tim Salmon, Troy Glouse, Gary Anderson, Darren Erstad, Frankie Rodriguez. And they're just putting up wins in bunches. By 2002, it was finally enough as the Angels won it all for their now-deceased owner, Gene Autry. When they uh, defeated the San Francisco Giants in seven games to win the first 
pro sports crowd in Orange County history. Disney bowed out within a year, and Edison International exercised their option to take its name off the ballpark. New owner Artie Moreno reduced ticket prices, gave the ballpark a proud new name, the Angel Stadium of Anaheim, and he kind of became less than popular with Anaheim officials uh, when he rebranded the name as the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. The city sued. But the judges ruled as long as the, uh, the name Anaheim is in there, Moreno is in the clear. Under Moreno's reign, the Angels have enjoyed the greatest success of the game, consistently drawing over 33 million fans a year and even beating the venerable Dodgers just 40 miles away. But these are vulnerable times for Artie Moreno. The Angels cannot seem to win with three of the greatest players in the game on the team. And Mr. Moreno has... You know, he's trial-tested like these passive-aggressive balloon threats of a move to, say, a nearby, nearby town like Tustin or Irvine. The Angels did wind up buying the entire state and property, the ballpark and the parking lots, for $325 million in 2019. The deal forces the Angels to stick around the site through 2050 with options that run into 2065 on the precipice of her 100th birthday. So... Whether Angel Stadium will be remodeled or completely rebuilt, it looks like it's going to be Moreno's decision in the end. The Magic Kingdom, it may be the last place where the tourists go. Yeah, they're going to Disneyland. But for the locals, the Magic Kingdom is and always will be the big A, Angel Stadium of Anaheim. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up. And man, it is really hard to believe that Angel Stadium is the fourth oldest crib in the league. It's really hard to believe that. I mean, you know, that's just crazy. I'm struck by the irony of how connected to the Dodgers the Angels are when it comes to their stadiums. First of all, the Angels absolutely hated playing at Dodgers Stadium. They felt like the Dodgers were pimping them out, and they were. They hated it so much that they never advertised their home stadium as Dodger Stadium. They instead called it Chavez Ravine, and they had it printed that way on the tickets, on their posters, whatever it was. And that spawned the name eventually to become Dodger Stadium at Chavez Ravine. They both had this connection to Disney Dodger Stadium wanted something futuristic in their plans. And owner Walter Malley even said that Disneyland is the model. Now, 40 years later, and Disney literally was the model as they transformed the Big A into what it is that we see now. And again, folks, if you haven't heard that Dodger Stadium show, you got to check it out. DiamondSnakeJake.Podbean.com So... There you have it. Another topic added to our expanding catalog. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed presenting. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. I'm on Facebook, YouTube, under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. I do what I do when I do it, and I do it better than anyone else. Facts. So, 
uh, when one story goes down, a new one takes its place. You know, it's like the Hydra. And the train rolls on. Next week, we're going to be talking about the death of Ray Chapman. Ray Chapman, the only player to die from a direct injury in a Major League Baseball game. What happened that fateful day versus the Yankees and pitcher Carl Mays? Well, look, Sugar Boo, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day.